want to welcome you who are here in the room and also those online. And I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke this morning, Luke chapter 2, verse 7. And we're in a series that we've entitled The Christmas Checklist. And this is the teaching team's desire for you, first of all, to have the best Christmas you can. Fill it with great festivities, great food, great friends and family. We want these last days before the Christmas celebration to be the best Christmas that you uh, have ever had. But the teaching team wants you to add to your Christmas checklist, not just the movies and the lights, the gifts under the tree, the decorations and all of that, but to make sure Christ has a place in your Christmas celebration. Last week we gave out checklists for you to take and to cross off those many things, but each Sunday, and including Christmas Eve, the teaching team wants to have you think about some Christ-centered elements to your celebration. Last week we talked about Mary and how Mary invited God into all of her questions and into all of her anxious thoughts about being the mother of the Savior. And we learned about what it means to worship God this Christmas and how every celebration by every Christ follower should first and foremost have the worship of God and the elevation of Christ and his redeeming work in the world to be made known. And so Mary did that and she pondered and treasured up all that had transpired and God used it to change a great many lives. But this morning, I want to give you a gift I want to give you a gift that won't break the day after Christmas. You won't grow out of it. It's not something that inevitably will go out of style. It's a gift that I believe keeps giving all year long. It's a gift that we need in our world. It's a gift we need to receive and we need to give to other people. That gift that I want to talk about this morning is the gift of forgiveness. And on your Christmas celebration checklist, I want you to consider this morning, is there a person or persons that you need to forgive today? Are there people in your lives who have wronged you, who have hurt you, who have offended you, have abused you, have wreaked havoc in your life that you as a Christ follower need to extend forgiveness towards? Now, I need you to understand that forgiveness is a costly thing. The reason why many of us don't give forgiveness at Christmas is it costs way more than the brand new technology or the brand new electronic set that you're looking for or the clothing that you've longed for. You see, forgiveness is costly because it costs you emotionally, it costs you spiritually. You see, there's something great about holding something over another individual. There's something about having that control, that power over someone who has wronged you. And so what you do is you hold on to that. You grab that and you don't want to release that. But God in his word says that first of all, he is a forgiving God. And if he is a forgiving God, and if we are recipients of his forgiveness, then surely Every believer, every Christ follower would seek to make it their endeavor to be as forgiving as possible. And so this morning, what I want to do is I want to speak to this issue of forgiveness. I want to define it so that we have an ability to understand what it is and what it isn't, because there's a lot of misrepresentation on what true biblical forgiveness is. I want to speak to what the Bible says about forgiveness, and then I want to show you 
through the Christmas story, three demonstrations of forgiveness that my hope is will challenge you, but it will also give you great peace and joy because of the forgiveness we experience through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And I believe that there's no greater thing that we can give in this Christmas celebration than forgiveness. And I recognize for some of us, we are not looking forward to the Christmas celebration because it will involve people in our lives or a reminder of those people who have wronged us and done us great harm. And so I want to encourage you with some statements. So let's, let's deal first of all with the definition. Let's look to the screen. The definition of biblical forgiveness is the process of forgiving someone or being forgiven as illustrated in the Bible. Forgiveness in itself is defined as the letting go of sin. If you wanted to simply define forgiveness, it's the letting go of sin. In the Bible, this includes forgiving everyone, every time of everything, as an act of obedience and gratefulness to God. It acknowledges the sacrifice God made through his son, Jesus, who died to restore the relationship between God and man. Now, forgiveness does not mean excusing, forgetting, permitting repetition of the sinful act against you, or guaranteeing reconciliation with the perpetrator. So let's go back and let's just define some of these words. First of all, we need to see biblical forgiveness is a process. So maybe this morning you said, but Tim, I'm, I'm trying Well, you're there. It's the trying, it's the investing the time and the energy to, to understand what God's call is for you and doing everything you can to inch yourself moment by moment, day by day, closer to releasing that person from their sin. Now, it says that we need to forgive someone or we have experienced that. Now, how do we know what forgiveness looks like? It is illustrated in the Bible. The Bible speaks more than a hundred times on the subject of forgiveness. A lot of it has to do with God's forgiveness of us as sinners and his love that he demonstrated towards us while being sinners where he sent his son Jesus to die to forgive us of our sins. But the Bible also is chock full of places and moments where individuals had to forgive others. Some of small situations and issues and other ones that were life-changing and life-altering decisions. No better one to see than in the uh, book of Genesis in, in the latter part of the book where Joseph, after years of abuse and struggle and issues that were brought on by his brothers against him, his, he had to come to a very difficult place, a difficult process of forgiving and saying what you intended for harm, God intended for the good. We see forgiveness illustrated in the Bible. Now, when you look at what forgiveness in the Bible says, notice these words, and these words will cause us great concern in our humanity. It means forgiving everyone. The Bible never says you don't have to forgive so-and-so. That sin isn't covered under forgiveness. It tells us if they're friends or family, you forgive them. If they're enemies, you forgive them. If they're strangers, you forgive them. We are called to forgive all people. Notice, every time. The Bible doesn't say on Monday, Wednesday, Friday, you forgive. On Tuesday, Thursday, you don't have to forgive. The Bible's consistent. We are to be forgiving people every day of the week, every month of the year, every year that we're alive. We are called to be people of forgiveness. Notice, everyone, every time, of everything. 
There is not a list of offenses that someone does to you that you can say, well, that's not in God's 10 forgivable offenses. So I don't have to forgive. And we see throughout the Bible, again, small things are forgiven, big things are forgiven. Now, we do so not because the individual deserves it. They may not deserve it. They may have just continued this process, and we'll see this in one of the examples of the Christmas story, that they don't deserve any forgiveness from a human perspective. So why do Christians forgive? It is as an act of obedience and gratefulness to God. Jesus tells a story, the reason why we forgive others of the small things that they've done against us is because we have been forgiven an eternal harm that we did towards God. And so we need to extend the forgiveness that God has extended to us. If not, then we are unmerciful and lacking the understanding of truly what God has set us free from. Now notice a couple things we need to see beyond it. Forgiveness is seen and acknowledges that Christ has done this work. But notice I wanna be very clear. Forgiveness does not mean excusing someone's sin. It's not saying boys will be boys. It's not saying, well, you know, they didn't mean to do it. It doesn't excuse it. It calls an evil or a wrong a wrong. It does not forget. We get this idea, we forgive and we forget. Now, God says he, he forget, forgets our sins, if you will. That is, he does not hold our sins against us. But we don't forget them. Don't ever forget those hurts. Don't ever forget those things. Don't let them hold you in bondage. But it's impossible to forget the great angst and pain that's been brought to us. It doesn't mean that you allow the repetition of the sinful act to continue to happen. You are not. Forgiving is not becoming a glutton for punishment. Nor does it mean the person who has hurt you, who has offended you, that you and them might become best friends one day. It may not happen. It may never be that case. And so this definition helps to tell you what forgiveness is and what it isn't. Now, let me give a disclaimer. I'm going to paint this picture or this painting of forgiveness with a very broad brush. And I know right away, some of you are going to have some really heartbreaking, and I say that with all sincerity, heartbreaking situations. And you're going to say, Tim, what I just heard you preach in this 30-some minute message, you're saying apply to my life. Listen to me. I'm giving a 30,000 view of forgiveness. What I'm going to ask you to do is take the word of God, allow the spirit of God to lead, and apply with the help of a multiplicity of counselors how you in your particular situation are called to forgive. And I'm going to pray that you're discerning enough to recognize where I may be speaking in a large sense, not specifically to yours, but let me add this. I would pray that no matter what your situation is, that you would always be allowing the word of God and the spirit of God to be growing you in the grace and knowledge of what true forgiveness looks like. So what does the Bible say about this before we get to the Christmas story? The Bible says much. As I said earlier, a hundred different times the Bible speaks to forgiveness. Let me speak to some of them, especially when it comes to our relationships with one another. Ephesians 4.32, write these passages down in your outline. Ephesians 4.32 says, be compassionate and kind to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. 
In Matthew 6, 14, Jesus says, For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. Colossians 3.13, bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. Do you see the connection? If you've experienced forgiveness from God vertically, your job is to horizontally forgive others. Well, how often are you supposed to do that? Matthew 18, verses 21 and 22. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, how many times, Lord, shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Maybe you've got someone who just continues to sin against you over and over again. How many times? Peter wants to know. Up to seven times? That seems notable. That seems laudable. But Jesus says, I tell you not seven times, but 70 times seven well, why is forgiveness such an important thing? Proverbs 17, 9. Forgiveness prospers when fault is, I'm sorry, love prospers when a fault is forgiven. But dwelling on it separates close friends. So maybe there's this issue between you and someone close and, and you're not as close as you used to be and, and partly because you can't let go of the offense that they've committed. It's gonna keep you apart. Finally, reminded of God's forgiveness for us, Daniel 9.9 says that our God, our Lord, is merciful and forgiving even though we have all rebelled against him. So here's this thing. God, who at Christmas began the process of forgiving us of our sins, now calls us seven days from Christmas to welcoming forgiveness into our lives. And we see it in the Christmas story. So let's see, because this theme of forgiveness runs through the story of Christmas. Let's look first of all, that we are called this Christmas to give forgiveness to those who disappoint us. To those who disappoint us. Uh, If you have your Bible with you, open it to Luke chapter two, verse seven. Luke chapter two, verse seven. It says the following. And Mary gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. One of the most biggest controversies of a pastor in preaching Christmas is what do you do with the innkeeper? You know, the innkeeper, the guy that kept Mary and Joseph from the, uh, being able to give birth in a nice, warm, and secure place. This curmudgeon of a man, this ogre of a man. You know, they always would pick in the kids' programs a kid like your pastor. You know, the obnoxious one, the, the difficult one. Tim, you're not going to be Joseph. We need someone more sensible than you to be Joseph. You can't be an angel because there's nothing angelic about you. You know, we don't want you telling the story of Jesus, so you can't be a shepherd. You're gonna be the innkeeper. And we want you to be kind of mean about it. There's no room, there's no vacancies. Get off my property. That's what we know of the innkeeper. The problem is, is the Bible doesn't speak about an innkeeper. It says that there was no room in the inn. That is, in all of Bethlehem, because of the census that had taken place, there was no place for Mary and Joseph to stay. Now, you may say I'm speculating a bit, and maybe so, 
But I got to imagine there was some level of disappointment by Joseph and Mary. We know that they weren't on vacation. They were traveling by, by decree to go back to Bethlehem. This happens when Mary is with child and seemingly full with child, about to give birth. The nativity story movie, I think, does a good job of capturing this. Upon entering into Bethlehem, we see Joseph running from house to house, banging on the door. My wife is in labor. Can you give us space? And each time, no, go away. No, go away. There's no room here until one man says, I don't have room but you can go to my, and he uses the phrase kataluma. Uh, that is, it's like our garage or your shed where you kept your implements, your, your equipment for your job and your animals. It wasn't a place where you would put family or friends. You would never put your uh, close loved ones in a kataluma. Uh, you would only reserve that for the lowest of low. Now, I got to imagine, and the Bible doesn't speak to it, let me be honest about that, but I got to imagine they come to the place of their origin, and Joseph says, this is the hospitality I'm going to get? Here I am, I've got it. It's not just me. I mean, you could put a guy, listen, guys, we can sleep anywhere, right? But this is a woman about to give birth, and seemingly, Bethlehem said in one accord, we don't have room for you. I got to imagine that Christmas for the Holy Family, there was a bit of disappointment. And I got to imagine today in a world of sin that some of you are dealing with disappointment. Maybe you haven't been left out so that you can't have uh, your labor in a suitable place. Maybe that's not the issue. But maybe someone hasn't lived up to their obligations. Maybe you had certain expectations of people and they've let you down. Maybe you depended on someone and you believed that they said they were gonna do X, Y, and Z and they haven't even started and it has caused you great angst and issue. Maybe their neglect has kept you from being able to celebrate this Christmas. We live in a world where people are going to let us down. And so what is the word for us this Christmas? Forgive. Forgive when others disappoint. Now, now, how do we do that? Well, I need you to recognize a couple of things. First of all, you might want to write this down. You need to recognize that though you're disappointed, you need to recognize you're guilty of the same crime. You're guilty of the same crime. You and I, in our finiteness, in our brokenness, in our lack of being able to fulfill our commitments, we will at times hurt people. We will at times disappoint people. Listen to me. I have disappointed my parents I have disappointed my children. I've disappointed my wife. I've disappointed my church. I've disappointed my employees and the customers with my other job. I've disappointed my neighbors. I look back and it is not hard for me and I believe I'm a man of my word and yet to err is human, I am going to and I have disappointed a great many people. And I need to own that so that when disappointment comes my way, I don't start to rip my clothes off and, and put on uh, sackcloth and ashes and wail and mourn. Oh my goodness, I've been wrong this terrible thing as if I have never disappointed others. 
Some of you need to just let go because you are holding a high and mighty place as if you've never disappointed anybody before. We are going to hurt one another. We are going to let one another down and we need to forgive one another when that happens. Now remember, forgiveness is not excusing. It's not letting bygones be bygones, but releasing that person from holding it over their head. Number two, we need to recognize we could be charged with disappointing others. Number two, we need to remember that love covers a multitude of sins. First Peter 4.8 says that love for one another is the lubricant or the oil that causes things that should have friction to keep from sparking. And so this Christmas, maybe family, you're gonna get together and there's people you don't like and they're gonna disappoint you. They're not gonna do what you've asked of them. They're going to fail. They're not gonna be there at time. They're not gonna do what you, uh, do what they said they were going to do. And sparks are gonna begin because the friction is gonna get it hot and it's gonna continue to start throwing sparks. Love is the lubricant that reduces those sparks from turning into a fire. And the Bible says that we should have enough love in our heart to be able to overlook the disappointments that are around us. Now, here's the crazy thing. Nowhere in the Christmas narrative do we see Mary or Joseph bring up these issues. In Luke chapter 2, 19, it says that Mary pondered up and treasured all that had transpired and she hated Bethlehem for not caring for her. Right, that was in my text. And she held it over the people of Bethlehem for their inhospitality when she was in need. No, they don't say that. It says that she pondered and treasured up all that had transpired. She was at a place of grace and mercy. Why? Because third, she rolled with the changes. She rolled with it. There was no place to stay. Anything would work. And she was thankful for a place that had covering, no doubt, a, some level of security, a place where she could give birth with some level of privacy, I'm sure, and to be able to see this thing take place. Now, now here's the thing. We need to recognize when we're disappointed that the world has not come to an end. We make mountains out of molehills of disappointment. And here's what we need to know. Mary and Joseph had no place. There was no room for them in the inn. God didn't say, oh boy, angels, what are we gonna do? No, he had it all worked out. The shepherds knew where to go. The angels told them where they could find the baby. The wise men found the baby. The baby was born. Nothing ill had happened to the, to the baby or to the family. Everything turned out as it needed to. And it turned out in such a way that God would use it to change lives because it would become the picture of Christ's humility when he should have been uh, born in the best of hospitals, in the best of throne rooms. He humbled himself and put on flesh and made his dwelling among us and making himself a servant, being born in a manger. And so what issues of disappointment? Who has disappointed you or what has disappointed you? In God, make the best that they can be by forgiving others of their offenses so that it doesn't eat you and erode at you as bitterness so often does. Number two, you say, Tim, this is great. Forgive those who disappoint you. Tim, 
You have no earthly idea the pain and the angst and the sorrow and the destruction that that person has brought to my life. To minimize it and say I'm disappointed is an offense to me, which I ask for your forgiveness. But there are some situations, there are some moments where it seems like to give someone forgiveness is going too far. What do we do and how are we to give this gift to those who not just disappoint, but how about those who seek to destroy you, destroy you? Turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter two. Matthew chapter two. We're still in the Christmas story. Matthew tells us of what's going on in the land around Bethlehem. He doesn't speak with regards to the shepherds. He speaks about Herod and the wise men. And we get a picture into what is going on. And we are told this. The wise men have come to Jerusalem. And and notice in verse 7, Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found the child, bring word to me so that I may too come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother and fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country. So the wise men leave. And after they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to help me out there. Destroy him. The moment of Christ's birth, he had an enemy that sought to destroy him. Christian, you may have in this life an enemy who seeks to destroy you. I don't know why they want to destroy you. I don't know what's caused them that angst. But you know that you live in a a time where there is someone who will do whatever they can to destroy your reputation to destroy your standing in the community, to destroy you emotionally, mentally, maybe even physically. And there's a truth here that we need to recognize, that Jesus, the moment he was born, had someone who hated him. So when Jesus says 30-some years later that we are to forgive our enemies. Jesus isn't speaking theoretically. He's saying the moment I was born, there was a guy in a high place who sought to kill me. Oh, Jesus, he was just speaking hyperbolically. He wasn't really wanting to kill you. Well, let's see what he says. Then Herod, verse 16, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem in that region who were two years or under, according to the time that had, he had ascertained from the wise men. Then what was, fit, was fulfilled, what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. Not only did this guy want to kill Jesus, but he was okay with killing anybody who got in the way of him getting 
to Jesus. And maybe you have an enemy right now who will do anything in their power to seek to destroy you, even if it means destroying those around you. What in the world are we supposed to do with that? Jesus says we are to forgive. But you don't know what they've done, what they've said, what they've threatened. Well, what are you supposed to do? Notice, I love that in this Christmas story, we are given words of wisdom. Number one, we pray. We pray, forgive your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Jesus remembers and knows my parents ran for their lives from Herod who wanted me dead. So we pray for our enemies. Not Lord Jesus, kill them. You can do that. I'm not sure that's the most loving thing to do. But I think what the Lord would say is the Lord would say, Lord, you know who my enemy is. Show them the light. Show them the pain and the sorrow that they're bringing to a great many people. Lord, hinder them in their approach to seeking to destroy me. Watch over me, Lord. Lord, give them a glimpse into your forgiveness for them. That they might come to the saving knowledge of Jesus This is what the early church would have had to have dealt with in praying for Saul of Tarsus who was persecuting the church and then their prayers were answered when on the road to Damascus, Saul sees the light and comes close to Jesus. If he can do that in the the life of Saul, he can do that in the life of any enemy that we have. But you say, okay, Tim, that's great. Pray, got it, okay? Number two, build protection against future hurts, write that down. Build protection against future hurts. Notice what Joseph and Mary don't do is say, okay, Herod wants to kill us. Let's just hang here in Bethlehem and see what happens. This is what God's given us. We're gonna be the Savior's family. It's gonna be hard, so let's just curse God and die. No, notice God sends an angel and he tells Joseph, get out. That enemy is on the cusp of seeking to destroy you and your son. Get to Egypt. Listen, if you have an enemy who seeks to destroy you, your job isn't just to pray and then grin and bear the pain that comes, but to get up and to build protection around you and your family from that individual. You can do that and still forgive. You cannot hold that sin against them, but that doesn't mean that you don't build protection around you. And I want you to notice that it isn't just one decision, but the entirety, listen to me very carefully, the entirety of Jesus' young life was all based on a protection strategy from people that wanted to kill him. You may not know this, but I want you to follow along, okay? In verse 19 of Matthew chapter two. But when Herod died, I'll get to that in a moment. Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel for the one who sought the child's life is dead. And he rose and he took the child and his mother and he went to the land of Israel. They went back home. But notice what happened. More protection was needed. But when he heard that Archelaus 
was reigning over Judea in the place of his father Herod, Joseph was afraid to go there, and being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and, when he, and he went and lived in a city named Nazareth, and that it was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, he shall be called a Nazarene. So the protection that God wanted from the family's enemy meant that they not only fled to Egypt, but when they came back, they were residing somewhere in Israel that was too prominent of a place, and so they chose Galilee and more specifically Nazareth because there's, listen, there's not much going on in Nazareth. We can hide in Nazareth, and therefore we can live at peace. Listen to me, they had abusers in their midst who wanted to harm them, and God, by his grace, sought to protect them. Now, the final thing you need to do is once you get protection, put your enemies into God's hands. Nowhere do we see revenge. Nowhere do we see Joseph building a militia to take on Herod. Nor do we see Jesus speak anything of this. In all my studying this last week, nowhere do I find Jesus even bringing this up. Hey, listen, that Herod, he's no good. That whole family of Herods, they tried to kill me as a kid. And now I am bent on bringing justice once and for all. Listen to me. He left it to his Father in heaven, and we do as well. And so here's what I love. Herod died. The Bible says man lives and dies once, and then comes judgment. Whatever Joseph, Mary, and Jesus could have done to Herod pales in comparison to what God could have done. Number two, recognize that when you put your enemy into God's hand, God sometimes uses the acts of your enemy to fulfill Christ's calling in your life. So twice it says, because of his enemy, scriptures were fulfilled. It wouldn't have happened had that enemy not been there. But The family needed to go to Egypt. Jesus needed to be called the Nazarene. And God used what man intended for harm, God intended for good, a blessing of many people to take place. And could it be that God has allowed an enemy into your life so that his work and plan, as difficult as it may be to endure, to bring some greater good into your life? We need to forgive those who disappoint us We need to forgive those who seek to destroy us. And the reason why we need to is because forgiveness this Christmas has been given to every one of us who has disobeyed God. And so I wanna just go to one more passage and that's Luke chapter one. Luke chapter one and the prophecy and the prayer of Zechariah as he lifts up his child, this miracle baby who was born to barren and aged woman Zechariah holds this baby and speaks prophetically into this baby's life. And he says, and you, child, verse 76, and you, child, will be the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people. You're gonna proclaim salvation to the people. That's what you and I have been called to here in the 21st century, to proclaim the knowledge of salvation to all people. And how do we do that? By telling the world, he says in verse 77, about the forgiveness of their sins. So church, the greatest gift that we can give is forgiveness of those who have offended us. 
But listen to me, church. The greatest gift that you can receive is the forgiveness from God. God, in his love and his mercy, has extended forgiveness to all who will receive him. And if you've not received Christ as your savior, then today is the day you and I were enemies of God. We disappointed God. We sought to destroy God. But on that Christmas day, Christ came in the world to seek and to save the unforgivable. And if you will extend your hand by faith, God says, I will receive you as my own. And as you receive him, you will feel the showering of forgiveness being laid on your sinful heart and mind as it did mine. And the only thing that you and I will be compelled to do from this point on is to forgive others as Christ has forgiven us. Christmas is all about forgiveness. Will you open your heart, not only to receive God's forgiveness for you, but my friends, will you make Christmas all that it should be by forgiving those who disappoint and even those who seek to destroy? My prayer is by the Spirit, you will apply these things to your own life in the nuances that need to be applied to it. And my prayer is that you will experience the thrill of hope the weary world rejoices in that God brought forgiveness to us and to the world. Amen.